This is episode 159 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Jen Bloomfield, author of Shakespeare and the Psalms Mystery, Did Shakespeare Help Write the King James Bible, and professor at the University of Nottingham. Another great method for studying William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The water rug was the English water spaniel. Uh, the breed was first described by Dr. Key's book. Uh, the breed went into the development of many of the modern day water spaniels, but sadly died out itself. Where you could say was absorbed by the other breeds. The last specimen was seen in the 1930s. It looked much like a curly coated Springer Spaniel with white and liver colored markings. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Elizabethan England, two of the most popular forms of public entertainment were animal baiting and hunting. Bull and bear baiting happened in a dedicated arena, while hunting was usually done on private lands or parks that were private. Usually very elite groups of people would gather for the hunt. What each of these sports has in common is they both employ use of dogs. Hunting dogs were raised meticulously, with manuals from Shakespeare's lifetime outlining the detailed husbandry involved in how to build kennels, how to feed, and even how to groom hunting dogs. When it came to choosing the right dog for the job, there were specific breeds of dog that were favored for particular sport. Shakespeare gives us a glimpse into the world of dogs and favoring specific breeds when he mentions hounds and greyhounds, mongrels, spaniels, curs, shuffs, water rugs, and demi-wolves in Macbeth Act 3. Shakespeare uses the word dog or hound over 200 times across his works, writing about spaniels, beagles, the Thessalian bull, which is considered to be an ancestor of the basset hound, and the Iceland dog in four additional plays. Here today to help us explore the husbandry of dogs that were popular in Elizabethan England, which ones were used for bull and bear baiting, as well as what we can know about the breeds Shakespeare calls out by name in his plays, are our guests and co-authors of Little Lions, Bull Baiters, and Hunting Hounds, Jeff Crosby and Professor Shelley Ann Jackson. Jeff and Shelley are husband and wife author illustrators living in Cambridge, United Kingdom with their daughter and two Chihuahua mixes. The two have collaboratively written, illustrated, and designed award-winning children's books. Jeff has also written and illustrated nine other books. Shelley is the course leader of the world-renowned children's book illustration master's course at Cambridge School of Art, Anglia Ruskin University. Hello, Jeff and Shelley. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, it's nice to be here. What was the most popular dog breed for bull baiting during Shakespeare's lifetime? Would there have been a preferred dog for this sport? I mean, that's a pretty intense thing to do. Well, firstly, for anyone who doesn't already know, bull and bear baiting was a terribly cruel sport that was incredibly popular in England during Shakespeare's lifetime. 
it was probably the last remnant of the Roman games where gladiators fought against all kinds of animals. But in England during the Tudor period, it was primarily bulls, bears, chimpanzees, and dogs that were forced to fight for the entertainment of the masses. A pack of dogs was set on the poor beast, which was tethered to a metal stake or to a wall, or in the case of chimps, strapped to a horse that was sent into the arena. The dogs would hunker down to avoid the bull's horns or bear's claws and then dart toward the animal and attack. The dogs didn't have it easy either, though. They were gored, thrown into the air, trampled, injured or killed in a variety of ways. As dogs would get injured, new ones were sent into the ring. Yeah, so this was mostly for entertainment. Spectators were drinking and betting, but also there was a sort of long-held belief that a bull's meat would be more tender if it was baited before slaughter. So butchers regularly baited their bulls. But it was also more formalized in arenas, just like the Roman games. Bear gardens, as they were called, were popular and dotted around London. In the case of bear baiting, it was so expensive to import them, they would usually call the dogs off after a couple dogs were injured and before the bear died so they could use the bear again. Queen Elizabeth was actually a huge fan. She kept her own English mastiffs and entertained visiting dignitaries with the show. She even went so far as to outlaw plays on Thursdays, because that was the usual day for these blood sports. I wonder how Shakespeare felt about that. Yeah. Oh, I got to take a back seat to the animals. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your question, the most popular dog breeds for this were English Mastiffs, like Elizabeth owned, and Old English Bulldogs, whose breed actually originates with the sport. But the bulldogs of the time were not like the bulldogs we know today. Right. They were bred for their fierceness and ability to attack a bull. They had to have strong jaws and neck muscles because they would grab onto the bull's nose or head and not let go. They were also bred to have light hindquarters so that when they were fastened on and the animal shook them, their spine wasn't instantly broken. The wrinkles on their faces were said to act as channels to pull the blood away from the eyes, from their eyes as well. It was a pretty brutal sport. But since blood sports were outlawed in 1835 with the Cruelty to Animals Act, and bulldogs were subsequently bred to be pets, they began to be selected for appearance and personality. They're no longer the ferocious dogs of Shakespeare's time, and their large heads and wrinkles have become even more extreme. Um, an English bulldog back then looked more like today's American bulldog. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they look somewhere between an English bulldog and a boxer. It's amazing to hear about the bulldog's history as this very, very violent animal, considering how sweet they yeah. are today. They're considered family dogs now, you know, that play with children and get along and they don't have this fierce reputation any longer. So it's it's almost a difficult thought to think of this bulldog being what was in there next to these bulls and, and bears really fighting that way. Yeah, absolutely. Bull and bear baiting weren't the only sports where dogs were popular for Shakespeare's lifetime, though hunting also saw entire packs of dogs used for this sport. Jeff and Shelley, the beagle seems to take the obvious choice as a guess at what kind of dog might have been used for hunting in Shakespeare's lifetime, and I'm basing that on the way Shakespeare writes about beagles in his plays. However, we know Shakespeare sometimes mentions specifics like that out of context for dramatic effect. So is the beagle a popular hunting dog for the 16th century, or were there others? 
yes, beagles were a favorite. Um, they were a favorite foot hound, meaning they were used when the hunter was walking rather than riding horseback. Upper class and nobility used them to hunt small game like hare. They were too small to catch large game. And fox hunting, which beagles are pretty much famous for, wasn't a popular sport until the mid-18th century. Beagles were said to be Queen Elizabeth's favorite hound, and she also enjoyed the miniature version that maxed out at 10 inches high. These little guys went into burrows to flush out game. But there were other popular hunters, depending on what type of game you were after. So otter hounds for hunting otter, the buckhound, deerhound, bloodhound, and greyhound hunted larger game like boar and deer. They probably all hunted in packs. However, beagles had the largest packs with a dozen or so dogs working together. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare mentions a particular kind of dog, the Thessalian bull, describing it as, quote, my hounds are bred out of the Spartan kind, so flued, so sanded, and their heads are hung with ears that sweep away the morning dew, crook-kneed and dew-lapped like Thessalian bulls. Slow in pursuit, but matched in mouth like bells, each under each. A cry more tunable was never hollered to, nor cheered with horn in Crete, in Sparta, nor in Thessaly. Judge when you hear, end quote. Jeff and Shelley, this description sounds to me like a basset hound, or perhaps even a bloodhound. Now, I come from the southern United States, where we are quite used to hounds like the bloodhound having exactly what Shakespeare's talking about of this never hollered to, or cheered in horn, this loud sort of, I found it, I'm chasing it kind of sound. But would Shakespeare have had that kind of dog, the basset hound or a bloodhound in his lifetime? And what exactly is it talking about when it describes a Thessalian bull? Well, with the Midsummer Night's Dream being set in Athens, uh, there are many Greek references, one of which is Thessaly, a Greek city-state known for its fertile agricultural land where they raised horses and cattle. So the Thessalian bull is simply a bull from this area. It has loose skin hanging from its neck, hence the dewlap comment. Yeah. Incidentally, Larissa, the main Thessalian city, had a large mint for making coins. So they were quite well off. And as thriving ancient cultures were known to do, they developed their own pastime of battling animals for fun. They practiced bull wrestling, where a nobleman leapt from a galloping horse and attempted to wrestle a bull to the ground. The bull that sounds like a rodeo. I've seen that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the bull wrestling was featured on the coins, so Shakespeare might have been familiar with them through studying Greek history. So as for the breed of dog being referred to, these attributes do sound a lot like the basset or bloodhound. However, there isn't much evidence of bassets being in Elizabethan England, so it seems more likely that Shakespeare is referring to the bloodhound. They had been in England since around 1066 when they were introduced by William the Conqueror. They were probably the oldest scent hound and were kept by most English monasteries for hunting. Their name comes from the fact that they were always bred to other bloodhounds and therefore of pure blood. I was wondering about that because you had the buck hound and then I think another <laughs> one that was named after what it w was good at bringing down. And I, I wondered about the bloodhound. But why was was it hunting blood? You know, so that makes sense. They were yeah, keeping. A, I think that's a common uh, misconception with the bloodhounds. Makes them sound very fierce. It does. It does. <laughs> In Shakespeare's Henry V, Act One, the Iceland dog is mentioned as a, quote, prick-eared cur of Iceland, end quote. Jeff and Shelley, this line from Shakespeare's play invokes the Iceland dog as an insult. Were dogs from Iceland considered disreputable for Shakespeare's lifetime? 
So this is a very interesting question. On its own, a cur means a mongrel or a street dog. And we know from a lot of the other comments that Shakespeare made in his work that he didn't look upon them fondly. But you have to understand that in those times, most people had a love-hate relationship with animals. So even if you lived in a city, animals were everywhere. Remember, this is before cars and tractors were used and meat and dairy were packed and shipped to the grocery. Right. So any animal that did work or was bred for consumption was readily visible. People used dogs for lots of jobs and let them roam free. So naturally, there were also tons of stray dogs around. They barked and fought in the streets, went to the bathroom wherever they pleased, and were generally not friendly to people. So often people were bitten, and many, especially children, died. A lot of people took to carrying walking sticks around to fend off the dogs. And also, apparently, dogs are not very susceptible to plague. So that means they don't die off like rats and other animals do when they get get it. However, they do transmit it to humans. So given all of this, it's no wonder that cur was an insult at the time. Um, if a dog wasn't working, it was usually viewed as a pest or even dangerous. And if we look at dogs in Iceland at the time, they would have been of the spitz type. So that means having a thick, warm coat, a stocky build, upright ears, and a tail that curls over the back. Spitz dogs are typically found in the far north and are used for pulling sleds and herding livestock. So think of the Malamute or the Husky. Uh, Spitz dogs arrived in Iceland back when the Vikings did. So in a study of British dogs um, by Dr. John Keyes in 1570, he was a naturalist and a physician to Queen Elizabeth. Keyes mentions the curs of Iceland. He doesn't bother to describe them like he does the other breeds, except to remark that their coats are so long and rough, you couldn't even see their bodies or faces. But he does note that some people are fascinated just by the novelty of this. They enjoyed the strangeness of the dogs. But Keyes himself was not enthralled. He calls them a beggarly beast brought out of barbarous borders. Um, It would seem that Shakespeare agreed. (laughs) So as a side note, Key's book was the first one written on dog breeds. He wrote it in Latin in 1570, and it was translated and published into English in 1576 and called Of English Dogs. I know that in times of plague, when the plague got really bad, they would actually round up the stray dogs to to exterminate them like rats for what you were saying, that they could make people sick, but they themselves weren't impacted by what was going on. So it's, it is interesting to see this dichotomy of, well, they're really great at these things, but we really hate them over here for these other things. Yeah. <laughs> if they're not working for us. Then right. If they're not yeah. earning their keep. Yeah. One surprising dog breed that shows up in Shakespeare's Macbeth is called the Water Rug. Jeff and Shelley, what is this dog breed in the 16th century and what attributes would it have been known for? The Water Rug was the English Water Spaniel. The breed was first described by Dr. Key's book. The breed went into the development of many of the modern day Water Spaniels, but sadly died out itself. Where you could say was absorbed by the other breeds. The last specimen was seen in the 1930s. It looked much like a curly-coated Springer Spaniel with white and liver-colored markings and often had its coat clipped short in areas in a similar fashion to poodles for better ease of swimming. 
They were used to retrieve ducks, geese, and other waterfowl shot by the hunters. In that same passage from Macbeth that we find the water rug, Shakespeare also mentions the highly recognizable greyhound. Jeff and Shelley, we think of greyhounds primarily as racing dogs today, but what would they have been like for Shakespeare? Were they used as racing dogs also, or were they used for something else? Well, greyhounds are sight hounds, so they're dogs who hunt using their vision, and they're possibly the first type of hunting dogs that humans worked with. Greyhounds were used in England at least back to the Anglo-Norman period for hunting, and that still would have been their primary function during Shakespeare's time. They were such lethal killers that by law, only gentlemen were allowed to keep them so that the forests weren't overhunted. The greyhound of this period varied in size. The larger ones would have hunted deer and the smaller hare. So in Shakespeare's play, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Lance compliments a woman by saying she has, quote, more qualities than a water spaniel, end quote. Now, you mentioned that the water rug was similar to a Springer spaniel and was known for being associated with the water. So it might be that dog that they're talking about. But this particular scene is meant to be comical. However, Shakespeare goes on to mention spaniels specifically at least 10 additional times across eight more plays, suggesting that the spaniel may have been a popular dog breed for Shakespeare's lifetime. Jeff and Shelley, were the English particularly fond of the spaniel during Shakespeare's lifetime? And what kind of dog is a water spaniel specifically? Yes. So this is the same spaniel that we mentioned earlier that was called the water rug. I can see the humor of giving a woman a compliment by comparing her to a dog. (laughs) But actually, water dogs have always been a prized worker for those who use them. So having more qualities than a water spaniel is a pretty good thing. If you think about the skills this dog would need to hunt birds in the English countryside, so the ability to communicate with the hunter, understanding his hand signals. A stealth to not frighten fowl. They were even trained to slip silently into the water and said to be able to dive into the water like a duck. They had the intelligence to retrieve the fowl on their own, perseverance not to give up, and a soft mouth uh, so as to not damage the bird while they're retrieving it. But, But also consider their physical attributes. So they had to be strong swimmers who were able to work in all weather and really cold water. They would also find and retrieve arrows that the hunter lost, which could go anywhere. (laughs) So yeah, water spaniels were highly valued by the landowners and nobility who were fortunate enough to have them. The title of Jeff and Shelley's book is called Little Lions, Bull Baiters, and Hunting Hounds. Jeff and Shelley, what exactly were the little lions for Shakespeare's lifetime? So the little lion we're referring to in our book is the Shih Tzu, who was bred to look like a lion. The Lion of Buddha, to be exact. And Shih Tzus were some of the original lap dogs bred for the Chinese royalty. They were completely pampered, had servants of their own, meals cooked for them, and were carried around on silk pillows. Not unlike the Shih Tzus of today. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So they're an ancient breed and were definitely around in Shakespeare's time. But the Chinese royalty were very protective of their beloved lion dogs and refused to trade, sell, or give any away until the 1900s. So Shakespeare wouldn't have encountered one. But European royalty definitely had their own equivalents. We should say that in those times, only the royalty or wealthy nobility could afford to own dogs who didn't do any work. Often these were miniaturized versions of popular working breeds. The pug, for example, is a miniature mastiff. And miniature spaniels were also popular. 
They were bred for appearance and personality rather than practical purpose. They also served as playmates for the children and often featured in nobility's family portraits. Early in the 16th century, they appeared in paintings as a status symbol or to represent the character of their owners. So ladies might have dainty lapdogs with long flowing hair and men would be featured with virile hunting dogs. But as the century progressed, they began to paint them simply because they were beloved pets. Uh, The book Paw Prints of History tells the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, and how as a child in France, she had a pack of 22 lapdogs, pugs, toy spaniels, and Maltese. Maltese are the little toy dogs originally bred in Malta and traded by sailors when in port with their goods. So when Mary went to rule Scotland, she brought many Maltese with her. Like the Shih Tzu in China, Mary's Maltese had their own servants to care for them, and each dog was fed two loaves of bread a day. Not very healthy, but... So when Mary was imprisoned, she had two of her dogs smuggled in as companions and even hid one under her skirts for comfort when she was beheaded. The Shih Tzu finally made it out of China to England in 1930 and were an instant hit. They still remain popular today. The rest of the passage about dogs in Shakespeare's Macbeth calls attention to the importance of naming a dog when he says, quote, all by the name of dogs, the valued file distinguishes the swift, the slow, the subtle, the housekeeper, the hunter, every one, according to the gift which bounteous nature hath in him closed, end quote. This starts to make a lot more sense to me as we explore things like the greyhound, the bloodhound, and the animals that are literally named for what they do. Jeff and Shelley, we've identified dogs for hunting and bear baiting, but what kind of dog is Shakespeare talking about when he mentions a dog that is a good housekeeper? We imagine he's talking about watchdogs, primarily mastiffs. Uh, Dr. Keyes calls them the keepers. They would guard the house and scare off intruders. Uh, Keyes mentions specifically homes of farmers and also merchants' houses where wealth and valuables might be stored. They also guarded the butchers, and they were used to carry messages in their collars from place to place, used to draw water from wells, carry tools, protect master when traveling, and if necessary, avenge his master's murder. Very Shakespearean. So another household job that dogs did were that of the comforter, as Keyes calls them. He claims that small spaniels can be applied as a plaster if a person has a stomach illness. And the warmth might help, but if not, the illness is transferred to the dog. And he wrote, experience can testify. I'll second that, I think. When I'm not feeling well, I certainly feel better when the dog comes and lays next to me. So there's got to be something to that. Hopefully they don't (laughs) suck up your illness, though. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not suck it forth from you. That's that's a little creepy. (laughs) (laughs) And so one more job uh, we no longer require of dogs, but the Elizabethans used, is powering the turnspit. So these dogs were kitchen assistants that ran in a wheel, which turned the spit when meat needed roasting. These dogs were short-legged, long-bodied, and ugly by certain accounts. So once they stopped needing them for this job, the type disappeared. That's so sad. That poor little dog, he got just ran off into the annals of history because he was ugly. Too bad. (laughs) (laughs) 
There are manuals from the 15th and 16th century that detail great care for dogs, including veterinary medicine, how to build a kennel and what to feed these prized dogs in, in addition to loaves of bread if you're Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> Jeff and Shelley, what was the process of keeping dogs for someone like Shakespeare? Would, would he have had these in his home or was there a profession established in London such that a master of dogs might be hired to care for the animals used for hunting or for these sports in particular? So we don't know if Shakespeare had dogs himself. Since he rented his lodging in London and was often traveling, he most likely didn't have any there, but he owned New Place in Stratford-upon-Avon, so he might have kept dogs there as watchdogs or companions. If he did have them, they most likely would have been cared for by servants or family members. Perhaps the dogs would have accompanied him as he went for his morning walks or when he traveled to visit the many properties he owned. The manuals for dog care, such as, and pardon my French here, uh, Gaston <laughs> de Foix's Trait de Lechamps, were intended for landed gentry who kept large kennels of hunting dogs. These wealthy landowners would have had gamekeepers and dog boys to attend to the dog's needs. This is all really exciting stuff about the life of dogs in the life of William Shakespeare and where they showed up and what kinds that we had. I know we would love to explore this further. In addition to your book, which you should definitely check out and I will link to in the show notes for today's episode, Jeff and Shelley, what are your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? So there's not really a definitive guide to Shakespeare and dogs, but there are a few that we found really interesting. So we've mentioned Of English Dogs by John Keyes a couple of times. This was written during Shakespeare's lifetime and is conveniently available free on Project Gutenberg. Like we said, it was the first text written on dogs, so it's not encyclopedic like books written on dog breeds today are, but it does give a description of the types that were around and is often quite entertaining, as you, you know. <laughs> so we should also mention that at that time, there are records kept for breeds like Shih Tzus and Bloodhounds, but most dogs were bred for a job and fell into a type rather than a specific breed. It wasn't until Victorian times when dog showing became a popular activity that specific rules were written that a member of a breed had to conform to and registrations were kept. So another fun fact about this book by Keyes, we don't know if this is true, but we've read speculation that Shakespeare's character, Dr. Keyes, from The Merry Wives of Windsor, was based on this Dr. Keyes. So if it is, you could make the leap that Shakespeare actually used this book as a reference for when he referred to dogs in his work. Oh, uh, well, if you were looking for a research project, they just handed you one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something to chase so, down. Yeah. We want to hear what you find, too. Absolutely. Post your, post your thoughts on that one in the comments for today's episode. <laughs> Another historical book, which we found interesting, was British Dogs, Their Points, Selection, and Show Preparation by William Drury. This one was written in 1903, but it looks back at the history of dogs in Britain at that time. So it's a bit more comprehensive than the Keys book. A couple lighter reads that give some interesting history are Paw Prints of History, Dogs in the Course of Human History by Sharon Cohen. And then there is A History of Britain in 100 Dogs by Emma White, and that's published by the History Press. And for those interested in seeing some paintings of dogs throughout history, William Secord has published numerous books on the subject, and he runs a gallery in New York that specializes in dog paintings. 
although the gallery is primarily 19th and 20th century art, but his books um, often give more breadth than that. And there's a great one that was put together by him and a few other people called Best in Show, The Dog in Art from Renaissance to Today. And that was published by the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and Yale University. These resources are so excellent. And we will include a couple of pictures and paintings in the show notes for today's episode where you can see some of these people who posed with their dogs and for paintings and things like that. But these books are going to be the best place to really dive in and wrap your mind around the dogs from Shakespeare's lifetime. So we'll post links to all of these books as well as Jeff and Shelley's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned after the conversation to find the link for where to get those. Jeff and Shelley, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I think I would choose The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's one of my favorite books from one of my favorite genres. And I think while wasting away in the hot tropical sun, I would enjoy reading about the Shady Shire and their, and their great feasts. Hmm. I, this might be cheating, but I think I'd bring my sketchbook so I can record everything around me. I don't think anyone has ever suggested bringing a sketchbook. Had lots of encyclopedias on the show, Uh, but a sketchbook is a first. And The Hobbit is a perfect choice for your deserted island, although we didn't guarantee your island would be in the tropics. I know. I I thought that was very uh, optimistic of him. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so you'd be well set up on your deserted island for sure. So what's next for you guys? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, our most recent project is another dog-themed book. It's Darwin and His Dogs, The Origin of a Naturalist. So it's a children's picture book, and it explores how Charles Darwin's love of and friendship with dogs influenced his thinking about evolution. Yeah, he also, um, in his famous work on the origin of species, he used dogs as a friendly and familiar example to present his thinking. So it kind of comes full circle with Darwin. We're pretty excited about this book, and it's on submission through our agents with publishers right now. Well, if it is anything like the book you've shared with us today, I know we're all looking forward to seeing that one and seeing more from Jeff Crosby and Shelley Ann Jackson. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us about Shakespeare and his dogs. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you, Cassidy. Be sure you stop by the show notes for today's episode for links to Jeff and Shelley's book, as well as links to all of the resources they mentioned in our talk today. You can also leave a comment for Jeff and Shelley Ann or talk with me about what you think about the show today in the comments below the episode. Find all these resources and more at castycash.com slash episode 159. That's castycash.com slash EP159. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. 
That's it for this week. I'm Cassidy Cash. Thank you for being here. I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.